You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our February edition of the Simulcast Journal Club podcast. How are you, Ben? Mate, I am good and uh, I'm pretty pumped. We have gotten off to a very good start for 2020 for Simulcast Journal Club. We have indeed. We've started talking about something that basically the medium is the message. We're talking about communities of practice and uh, the illustration of one through the way that we talked about it, I think, Ben. So why don't you tell us about this paper and uh, what our discussants thought about it? Yeah, absolutely. So the paper is called Establishing a Virtual Community of Practice in Simulation. It was published in Simulation in Healthcare in April 2018. And uh, the article itself is by Toma et al. and it reports two primary aims, the first of which is to describe the virtual communities of practice evolving within the simulation community, and the second is to assist educators to engage, learn, and contribute to the growth of that community. So the paper starts with concern regarding the fact that many simulation educators work in isolated silos without significant opportunity for professional development, which, as you know, Vic, is very much my jam. And while conferences can provide opportunities to engage and connect with other colleagues, it's not without a lot of devoting significant time and expense to do that. And it's not always doable for many people, particularly I know a lot of nurses who'd like to go on some of these conferences, but the expenses are pretty significant. So, look, the authors identify that virtual communities of practice are a potential solution to this problem. And so they define some theoretical concepts by Levin Wenger about communities of practice. And to quote the article, a community of practice is an environment where people can share a concern, a set of problems, or a passion about a topic and can deepen their knowledge and expertise in this area by interacting on an ongoing basis. Learning in a community of practice is a collaborative and social process with thinking that is situated within a cultural context. As groups interact, they develop a social identity where common concepts, knowledge, power, language, and other social tools become communal properties and products of the members of that community. The article then defines some terms and groups within social media communities, and then it outlines the benefits of engaging with virtual communities of practice, which they break down really nicely into consumption of educational content, curation of available resources, and then connection with other practitioners. And they argue that many participants will remain primarily consumers and that that's okay, but that the benefits of community membership increase with increasing personal engagement. With regards to the downsides of that engagement, the article does outline a number of concerns, so particularly participant concern regarding psychological safety and potential negative consequences from saying the wrong thing, the potential for communities to focus more on what they like than what they need, which has been a bit of a recurrent theme with some sort of uh, learner-driven learning that we've discussed about before. And also the possibility of low quality resources or knowledge being interpreted as factual based to their online presence. The article quotes Weingart and Thoma's online hierarchy of needs as a useful model for engagement within a community of practice. So that hierarchy is essentially starts with the existence of the community itself, then developing comfort with social media, consuming resources, and then interacting with members, and then eventually sharing your own resources. It's a bit like Bloom's taxonomy that way, I guess. 
And then finally, the article briefly explores the potential benefits of social media engagement from an academic lens, exploring the use of alt metrics and the possibilities of increased research translation through online communities of practice. And Vic, you were a co-author on this. Do you have anything to add there? Interestingly, when we wrote this, there was probably a group who were at the interface between the social media early adopters in the emergency medicine community and then those of us who were also involved in the simulation community. So as I read this, I see a lot of the discussion that we were having about uh, free open access medical education uh, particularly focused on emergency medicine and critical care. And that's probably reflected, I think, in what we wrote, uh, who wrote it, and some of the points that we make. So this article is very 2018. Is that what you're telling me? Oh, so 2018. <laughs> <laughs> so look, uh, one thing I do have to comment before I move on to what was discussed in the Journal Club itself is just how very meta this month was. So the year started with you doing the closing pet plenary at IMSH 2020 in San Diego, discussing, amongst other things, communities of practice. And then in that plenary, we plugged the first Journal Club article of the year on virtual communities of practice. The case study is about someone returning from San Diego, missing that connection and needing some guidance on how to connect with the sim community online. And then we actually got people from around the world commenting on the article over the course of the month. And then Jenny Rudolph comes in at the end of the month and summarizes and guides readers through an understanding of some of the core concepts of Lab and Wenger's community of practice concepts, utilizing the Simulcast Journal Club itself for the month as its own case study. So that was a lot of layers in that onion, but I was pretty impressed with how meta we went. I know. I think I have to take it all back. You know how I said there was no such word as metatextual? There is now. <laughs> You've proved me wrong this month, Ben. Uh, mind you, there's some other words that people might use about this level of introspection that probably don't warrant public uh, discussion on a podcast. <laughs> so, look, it was genuinely an amazing start to Journal Club 2020 this month. We had a number of colleagues joining us for the first time, while many old friends came to share their wisdom as well. And the discussion was wide, it was in-depth, and it was also very and I think it's really well worth going back to the site and reading it. Particular themes that came out of discussion were essentially that we explored the internal and external barriers to engagement in communities of practice. We kind of created a shared narrative by sharing experiences within online engagement. And then there was some significant and interesting debate regarding whether social media influences or uh, people who are prominent within the foam sim or foam ed community potentially have an inappropriately significant impact on online dialogue. So with regard to the barriers, look, this was fairly consistent, but what was interesting was that quite early in the month, uh, Susan Ella opened with a very frank and honest conversation regarding some of the social risks involved in engaging in social media. So she said, look, social media can play havoc with people's sense of self-esteem if they don't understand the way it works. I like to think that as a highly educated person, I should not be susceptible to lowly emotions such as FOMO or imposter syndrome. But social media can trigger these things. Why does that person not follow me back on Twitter? Why, why, when I contributed such a pithy comment on Twitter, is it being ignored? Things like that. And I think through sort of declaring that intellectual candor really uh, openly and honestly very early in the discussion, it actually opened up a very fabulous kind of safe space for people to discuss some of the things they're concerned about. Overall, people reported pretty positive experiences and Sarah Jansen's at the Mata and the Mata Club emphasised that 
virtual communities of practice allow communication and learning in the interstitial spaces of our lives, delivering information in increasingly accessible and bite-sized chunks, a significant advantage for busy clinician educators. And I do love that term, interstitial spaces uh, for learning. I think she frames that really nicely. And I agree, Susan's contributions were important, but I actually wanted to highlight something she said about you. True, a masterful and mindful job of creating psychological safety in this community. And I think that's something that is under discussed in the concepts of community of practice is they do need some nurturing and it's not just about what they do and who they are and how they comprise but it's also about the interactions within that group as to the health of them. Yeah I think that's a good point and I'll take the compliment but also I think it yeah it does highlight that it does take work like we've been going now over three years and um, you know a lot of people still feel very nervous about commenting. Mm, Yes. Um, So with regard to sharing experiences in online engagement, uh, different people use different platforms. And while Twitter was a prominent platform, Susan Somerville noted, for example, that her students preferred private WhatsApp channels, while Christina Chung shared some of the challenges and benefits of combining online discussion with monthly video calls. And in all the models, there were similar challenges with creating genuine human connection dealing with putting one's thoughts forward in sometimes unnatural forms of communication and a persistent sense of at least perceived hierarchy or social dynamics in every format. So Jenny Rudolph took this further by utilising the Journal Club comments themselves as a case study to break down the different aspects of social interaction that were happening. And she also introduced this idea that along with learning or getting work done in a community of practice, we are often also developing our sense of identity within the community. And that's something I think which is under-recognised and it's an important process. So as Susan summarized, first I lurked, then I started posting and have worked my way towards collaborating with other educators on scholarly projects. And Jenny notes, that's a pretty pithy description of this concept of legitimate peripheral participation. So we start exploring our identity by dipping our toes into the online waters, and then we gradually become comfortable representing our thoughts and who we are as a member of that group, as well as sharing what we think. Both of those things are important. You're listening to Simulcast. Um, And then there was some debate, which I don't think we really got to the end to. It was just sort of introduced, and I thought it was an interesting idea, uh, was that there was concern that, you know, there are certain people within the Foam Sim community, for example, who would have a heavier amount of influence on the content and direction of some debates or conversation. Um, And so this was kind of identified and, and some people voicing, not necessarily concern, but questioning how that might affect the community's ability to grow in a different direction? Uh, I think it's the same as any community, isn't it, Ben? Uh, There are people with more social capital than others, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Yeah, I think that sums it up. Uh, So that was just, yeah, a really fabulous discussion. Thank you to all of the new people who came along. Thank you to all of the people who come along regularly and and role model that vulnerability, openness and... um, Uh, genuine passion for teaching and sharing some of these ideas. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. So um, I asked Andrew Tagg to be our expert this month. So he is an emergency physician for Western Health with a special interest in paediatrics. And one reason I asked him to provide an expert commentary is that he is co-founder of Don't Forget the Bubbles, which is a paediatric foam ed website and online community of practice. And so I was really interested to see what someone thought that who was probably less within the 
foam sim community per se, although I know he's involved, but had a, a sort of a similar lens based on their experience in a different virtual community of practice. So Andy used the paper as a framework to explore and reflect on this and um, outlining the benefits for him personally from engaging and don't forget the bubbles. So connecting with other passionate educators, curation of important content for his field and utilizing online journal clubs to allow time for professional development in those interstitial moments in one's life. And he acknowledges but doesn't dramatize concerns about online psychological safety and the potential judgment from others. And in particular, he brings up concerns that really the encroachment of an online community of practice beyond health borders, healthy borders in one's own real life can be a, a bit of a threat to your real relationships as well occasionally and something many of us are careful about. Uh, so uh, Many thanks to Andy this month for sharing his perspective. And uh, if you'd like to read more about that, he's got it. We've got it in our PDF summary that will attach to this post. You're listening to Simulcast. Well, well done, Ben, uh, at both managing the conversation, uh, summarising the article and getting us thinking about how we can find our people online. We, uh, If you're happy, we might turn our attention now to a couple of other little entries here, a couple of papers and a scenario that I'm going to review. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm looking forward to it, actually. All right, well, I'm going to start uh, with a paper that looks at a slightly different community of practice, and that is of simulated patients and uh, those who undertake simulated patient roles in our education training or quality improvement simulation. And so this is a paper, and the title is It's Not an Acting Job. Don't Underestimate What a Simulated Patient Does. A qualitative study exploring the perspectives of simulated patients in health professions education. And this is by Shane Pritchard and a team from Monash Health in Victoria, Australia. And uh, they, this was published in Simulation in Healthcare just this month, January or February 2020. And uh, they start out by providing a bit of an introduction. What is a simulated patient? They go through a little bit about terminology. Um, some people have used the term standardised patient, which I guess refers to the role of uh, these folks in exams when they're really trying to play the same role every time. But I think the terminology has shifted now to simulated patients. And, and they make the point that as simulated patients, uh, these educators have both positive and negative experiences. So this builds up to what their research question was, which says, uh, what are the practices, experiences, and perspectives of simulated patients who work in health professional education? So a very broad question uh, and really seeking to build on some of the standards of best practice for simulated patient methodologies that have been previously published in other journals. So it sounds like, Ben, a, a pretty good question to address. Do you work with simulated patients very much? I work very little. So the only time I work with simulated patients is usually when I come down to visit you on the Gold Coast. And I think that reflects the fact that being uh, exclusively within the pediatric uh, simulation field, that is uh, comes with a different set of challenges, which I know in some settings are achievable and can be overcome, but I think it is a little bit more difficult. Yes, that is very true. And we do not work with any pediatric simulated patients, but uh, I've spent the last two days working with ours. So some of this was very fresh in my mind. So what did they do? They interviewed 18 simulated patients in three focus groups, uh, all from the state of Victoria and Australia. Uh, and 
They took, and I'm not going to go into detail here, but inductive qualitative approach aligning with interpretivism, which I think you're very interested in, Ben. <laughs> was. Well, I didn't understand what it was, so I looked it up and I I realized that I am not an interpretivist. I am a, I don't know how to pronounce it, positivist. That's uh, how you pronounce that, it? I think That's how that, I pronounce it? Yep. Yeah, so, I think that social laws and expectations heavily impact individual behavior, whereas from what I can read from revisedsociology.com, Interpreters feel that individuals are intricate and complex and different people experience and understand the same reality in very different ways. And so you're not necessarily going to be able to make a broad rule that sort of summarizes what people, how people respond to something. Yes, it's about now that I wish someone like Lara Varpio would come along as Lara did to uh, the um, Key Lime podcast and say, you guys don't know what you're talking about with methods, can I join you? <laughs> <laughs> uh fair enough yeah but i was learning yeah. so i'm enjoying it yeah and look i think for those of us who are everyday readers of literature i would say this is a team who and they describe their backgrounds who have good qualitative experience they described the rigor that they approached it with and essentially they took the view that we're going to ask these questions and our messages will arise out of the data rather than going in with a preformed idea about whether it was good or bad and just squeezing the data into a framework. So what did they come up with when they analysed these focus groups uh, having been uh, recorded and transcribed? And there are really three themes that make a bit of sense, but there is a little bit of devil in the detail. So the three themes, or the first of these themes, is about becoming and being an SP. And so this really harks back to some of the things you were talking about before within our uh, educated communities of practice, who do we think we are? And so it talks a little bit about why do people, mo are they motivated to become simulated patients? And then a little bit about how they think about their role. And certainly I think this is probably one of the biggest take-home messages. They're not just actors because actors are portraying a role. There is an additional layer on top of this, which is about and they don't quite use these words, but I'm going to, about being educators, about their role really is to help people improve their work. It's not just to play the role and, and leave that alone. Uh, and they and there's a nice little thing here about how they believe they portray the perspectives of patients and, and consumers, which I think is an important addition often to the conversations we have in simulation. Uh, the second theme is about preparing for a simulated patient role. and this is probably a nice little nuance. It says that not only do they have to consider the character that is being portrayed, but also the learning context, i.e. You, you will portray that character differently to if you've got a medical student, to if you've got an advanced medical and nursing team in an emergency department, uh, but also the health issue. How do they research what a patient with a drug-induced seizure would be like? How do they research a patient who's suffering an acute coronary syndrome would be like? And then finally, they talk about actually performing the simulated patient role, about getting into character, about having to deal with some of the un uncertainty that we know happens in simulation scenarios. And then also importantly, how do you get out of role? If you've just played a young woman having a miscarriage 
five or six times in one afternoon, you know, you really do have to find a way to leave that behind to get back into your real life. So I I think there was lots of interesting reading here. I think it was nicely put together in the themes, obviously. And uh, I think I actually got this article and I sent it to our simulated patient team because I thought they might find it interesting. Uh, What struck you about it, Ben? A lot, actually. I really enjoyed reading this paper. Um, I thought there was some, obviously some great qualitative stuff that you've already uh, summarised. But to me, what struck me really is this tension between the fact that I think what I interpreted from what I read was that simulated patients identify that they represent and advocate for human beings as whole people within healthcare systems. Whereas I felt they were also reporting the experience that medical staff or scenario writers and educationists tend to create characters that are primarily frequently a constellation of symptoms or signs that can lead participants down a particular pathophysiological path. Um, and I found that there was a little bit of tension in the article, be, be almost a sense of frustration. If you even look at the title of the article, it is combative is an overstatement, but it is a strong statement and opinion that seems to be designed to be read specifically by people who are not SPs. And so one critique I guess I had for the paper was that um, I felt there was some approachability regarding some of the terminology that was used, particularly if if this is going to be shared within the SP community, then um, certainly I think for many of us, uh, understanding some of those concepts of interpretivism and all that could potentially have been explained in a bit more approachable way. Um, yeah, I, that's always, I think, a challenge. Are you writing very, for an academic audience versus another? Yeah. But I think also uh, for me that concept of needing to break out of character after a sim actually resonated for a very different reason in that um, I think that if I put my clinical debriefing hat on, that is a, a not infrequent experience in our cold debriefs where we might go in for an hour to talk about an experience that we didn't actually share um, and then learning to have some active strategies to break out of that emotional contagion was um, sort of resonated a lot. So it was interesting to hear some sort of functional strategies from a different community, which I found really useful. So I really enjoyed this article. I I got a lot out of it and learned a lot about the SP community and the things that they do so well. Uh, And look, my takeaways really were that language is important and I know Deborah Nestella is always encouraging us to talk about working with simulated patients, not using simulated patients, and I think that's a a bare minimum of terminology uh, issues. I think the point they make about integrating these perspectives into the standards of best practice for simulated patient methodologies, which the formulation of which the authors admit is is more dominated by non-simulated patient educators, uh, and so these perspectives are probably important to incorporate into those. Uh, They make some points about safety, not just health and physical safety, but also psychological safety, and I guess picking up and connecting to our main article this month, there is quite a section in there about how uh, the communities of practice lens is a useful one to also look at for the simulated patient community. You're listening to Simulcast. Okay, well, we might go on to our next article, and it's just like mutual admiration article this month because you're an author on this one, Ben. Yes, it's my first paper. There you go, and the senior author. So this is a paper titled Optimus Bonus. 
open access simulation-based education packages on paediatric resuscitation using spaced repetition and deliberate practice by Sonia Twick, a team of stars, and final author, Benjamin Simon. So uh, this is from your team at the Children's Hospital here in Queensland, Australia, and this is published in BMJ Stell at the end of 2019. Uh, and so you can fill in some gaps here, but I'm going to act like I just read this without knowing you. And so I'll summarize the uh, paper. And just for readers' interest, this is an in-practice report, which I think is a very popular type of paper that the BMJ Stell publishes uh, because it gets reviewed by one of the section editors and it's a short, literally a short report. And it really is, we've got a great idea. This is what we did. What do you think of it? It doesn't have to have some of the research methods that uh, the original research sections do. Uh, why did you choose it, Ben? Uh, well, I think that's what we wanted to do. We just thought we were doing something cool and we wanted to be able to share it with the community in a wider way. All right. Well, what did you do? So the the introduction to this paper uh, says, we described the development and public release of a series of simulation-based education packages designed in a multi-layered format to include infographics, links to online training and open access medical resources. And I think the context here, and this is in the About Us section of the paper, uh, talks about STORK, which is the Simulation Training Optimizing Resuscitation for Kids team. Uh, and the team that you work with at the Children's Hospital has responsibility not just for that hospital but for education in paediatric resuscitation around the state. Uh, and so the Optimus references are to a series of courses that are run by this team. And there's two levels of courses at the moment, core and prime, and they're kind of a stepwise approach to trying to um, achieve proficiency for, for individuals, for teams, and it seems to me for systems in terms of improving the care of unwell children in Queensland. And you're describing what guidance you used for uh, putting together the courses. And Cheng et al.'s paper on resuscitation education science, which I do think is a really great paper. Uh, and it means that you aim to harness the power of deliberate practice, spaced repetition, contextual learning, feedback through debriefing, and innovative educational strategies such as podcasts and infographics. So you're taking the lens of what really is effective learning and how do we uh, produce materials that are going to encourage our educators to deliver that and our learners to benefit from it. So each package uh, is designed to be a one-hour simulation education package and it has a content expert's introduction, a bit of pre-reading for the participants, which includes a lot of contemporary formats like blogs and podcasts, uh, a peer-reviewed scenario with learning objectives, instructions and hints for debriefing, and then, of course, with Dr. Simon involved, an infographic that summarises the learning points with a QR code to link to just-in-time training resources, and then a final reference list and built-in evaluation form. And then distributed via uh, free open access uh, methods, including but not limited to the Don't Forget the Bubbles uh, website that we referred to earlier. So, Ben, have I given it a decent description? Uh, yeah, you've been very generous, yeah. Uh, and I think uh, basically when we, so we fly around the state, we teach courses on pediatric resuscitation and it was recognized by our director very early on that, you know, if we're releasing these courses, then we essentially have a responsibility to recognize that there's going to be pretty swift skill decay afterwards. Uh, and so he was very keen for a while for us to have these 
uh, bonus packages that people could just use off the shelf that would satisfy hopefully some of their needs within their local hospital systems. Uh, and they're designed both to reinforce the education that we've taught on the courses and then secondly to work as a bit of a systems test to some of the issues that um, we've found as we travel around the state. And it's been a, yeah, a really fun project to work on. I'm very proud of Sonia's work and the rest of the teams. Yeah, and it seems like it probably ticked a few different boxes. One, this was a project that your fellows could get their teeth into. Uh, the content review seemed to engage a lot of the content experts that you have at the Children's Hospital and around the state, and there's a little description there of how you're going to try and keep things up to date. Uh, but the distribution, you did also manage to... Uh, evade any of the concerns that sometimes institutions have about intellectual property and say, no, no, this is stuff we really need to share. And so there are many ways that people can access this from outside the system as well as from within it. Was that difficult or did you just not really ask anyone for permission? Uh, I'd love to say we didn't ask permission, but we actually did uh, because there had been some concerns uh, within the old Royal Children's Hospital about uh, engaging sort of without guidance on the online sort of formats. But I think things have uh, changed a little bit in the last few years and a lot of institutions are actually pretty keen. Um, and certainly Children's Health Queensland were quite uh, excited about the possibility that we can share our resources sort of nationally and uh, potentially internationally as well. Yeah, and uh, for readers of the article, there's also some online supplementary material, which actually includes a couple of examples. And the one that's put in there is about treating SVT in infants. You're listening to Simulcast. So the final, uh, it's not so much a paper I wanted to review, but a scenario. So this is a, a scenario on the EM SIM cases website. And if you haven't looked at this resource, you should. Uh, I think its applicability extends beyond emergency medicine. But uh, just so people know the website, it's emsimcases.com, emsimcases.com. And this is a group who write and publish peer-reviewed scenarios, mainly of relevance to emergency medicine. And the one I'm reviewing today uh, is entitled Suspected COVID-19, i.e. coronavirus. And if, like most other simulation teams on the planet, you've been asked by your executive to say, how can we do some simulation about coronavirus? This is your go-to place. Uh, and as I said, the EM Sim Cases website put up these resources that include uh, not just the scenario outline, but things like x-rays, ECGs, and in this case, a video, which is relevant uh, in terms of the props that are used. So as I said, the um, very topical scenario, and I'm just going to go through uh, why it's been written, what's in it, and how you might go about delivering it if you're interested. So the, they, they say the educational goal is set out as practice personal and team safety while assessing and providing care to a patient with a potentially airborne respiratory illness requiring full personal protective equipment. So they're both looking at how the team works, how good we are at our PPE, uh, how good we are at protecting ourselves and how good is the institutional uh, response. And I'm going to give a shout out here to the scenario developers because this is uh, important. These people spend a lot of time on this for our benefit. So uh, Alia Daramsey, uh, Sujin Yi and Dr. Kate Heyman are all from the University of Toronto and have put this together. 
and uh, so shout out to them. So they describe a case of someone who's travelled from mainland China who has the appropriate risks for coronavirus, they're febrile, they're unwell, and, in fact, this patient is sick when they arrive at triage. Their heart rate's 140, their temperature's 39, their blood pressure's 100. So the scenario starts out, in fact, in this case, with a simulated patient who then is moved from triage to a negative pressure room and staff have to go on in full PPE. Uh, And then the patient becomes a mannequin and gets even sicker and requires intubation while the team are actually wearing their um, personal protective equipment. Now, there's a couple of really cool things about this scenario. One is on the scenario description, there's a way that you can make this mannequin sneeze out aerosolized droplets, uh, which is a very funny-looking video, but actually sort of captures the whole idea of this is how these um, coronavirus might spread and so how do we protect ourselves. And what they also described in there is using something called glow germ, which is uh, either a gel or, in this case, dust that you can put in that aerosolized uh, liquid and then it lands on the people in the room or the equipment and then you can come along with this infrared light at the end of the scenario and see just how far distributed these so-called germs have been. And if you were to take off all your PPE, see if any of it still had managed to land on your person. So you can get a little bit of an insight into how effective the PPE is or is not, uh, as well as actually looking after a sick patient with a respiratory illness. So I thought I'd just highlight this for people and all the resources are in there. There's a uh, X-ray, an ECG, ultrasounds, all the things that you would need if you were going to run this scenario. Uh, so I thought it was really timely, Ben, and uh, something which I think I'm just going to take away and, and use pretty much holus bolus for our team. Yeah, I was really excited that you chose this actually, but also to see the SIM community sharing these resources online in a pretty reflexive and rapid way to respond to a a new healthcare problem. I really love that the SIM was sort of explicitly framed primarily as a systems test rather than a purely educational one. And I love the resources that are included and the supplemental moulage package is really fantastic. All right. So uh, EM SIM cases, the link will be in our uh, blog post. So Ben, what's up for next month? Uh, yeah, so next month we are looking at a debriefing paper entitled A Conceptual Framework for the Development of Debriefing Skills, A Journey of Discovery, Growth and Maturity. Uh, it's by Cheng et al. And it was published uh, in February 2020 of Simulation in Healthcare. Uh, and it is more about sort of professional development and how we grow as we become expert debriefers. And I think that Adam has actually been able to pull some strings on this. So he has been able to get simulation in healthcare to make the paper open access for the month of month of March. Uh, so if you'd like to join in and you don't have a subscription to simulation in healthcare, the article should be coming up on the 1st of March to read. So uh, come along and join us for that discussion. Hopefully it'll be just as good as this month. Yeah, we love the pulling strings for the uh, open access. That's I know, right? It's not what you know. Exactly. Well, I feel like we've looked at communities of practice from all angles, thinking about it explicitly in our own communities of practice and a paper about it, thinking about simulated patient educators and their community of practice, um, thinking about resources and how we share them amongst our communities of practice. And uh, so, Ben, it's just such a meta. (laughs) 
Beautifully summarised. All right. I okay, wish I well, thought of it. <laughs> well, till next time, Simulcast listeners, it's Ben Simon and Victoria Brazel signing off. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.